Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled. Missoula is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and read more about this week's show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Today, the Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in the Grand Canyon. I'm rowing a 18-foot boat right now downstream of Lava Falls. We're floating past remnants of ancient lava dams. And Professor Sean Graham teaches biology in Texas. He is also the author of American Snakes. If you tuned in last week, Sean talked about snakes of North America, the Grand Canyon in particular, and snakes of the world. But now we're going to talk about deserts. We're going to talk about deserts of the world, but we're going to start with the desert that we're floating through right now. That's kind of funny to think about floating through a desert, yeah. <laughs> but we are. We're floating on the Colorado River, which is a major source of water for otherwise very dry region of the desert southwest. And it cuts right through, especially in the Grand Canyon, one of the most arid regions in North America. I've been kind of writing down notes as we go down this canyon, a couple hundred miles, trying to get a feel for which desert really we have here. The interesting thing about the Grand Canyon, it cuts so far down into the earth, about a mile, right, in some places, that there's such a huge elevational range between the bottom of the Grand Canyon and the top that there's several different distinct zones of vegetation represented. And to the best of that I can kind of interpret, as you're up at the rim of the Grand Canyon, you might have noticed if you've ever been there that it's kind of a woodland of small pines called pinyons and, and junipers. If you ever walk down into the canyon, it becomes drier and drier and hotter and hotter as you go. And so as you go down the slopes, the upper slopes of the canyon itself are covered with vegetation that looks a lot like the vegetation outside the canyon in dry areas of northern Arizona, Utah, and Nevada, what we call the Great Basin Desert. Things like blackbrush and sagebrush grow in the upper slopes of the Grand Canyon. And then when you go down even deeper, another couple of thousand feet, the blackbrush and the Great Basin big sagebrush kind of dwindles and, and goes away and it becomes even hotter and drier and you get to an area in the canyon where apparently frost never occurs and snow never occurs. The inner canyon is actually kind of a different desert. The vegetation there is more similar to areas in Southern California. It's the Mojave Desert. Things like California barrel cactus grow there and creosote bush. We saw our first creosote bush on the float trip yesterday. The vegetation down here where it's really hot and dry is mostly that of the Mojave Desert. So the Grand Canyon actually has essentially one desert on top of another. The Mojave Desert at the bottom, the Great Basin towards the top. And there's even elements of the other two deserts of North America, other plants of the Sonoran Desert kind of mixed in, and at least one representation of uh, what otherwise is a uniquely Chihuahuan desert plant. So it's a real mixture of different types of desert vegetation here, mostly the Mojave and Great Basin Desert, but even some other things sneaking in. I guess that really shouldn't surprise you given that Arizona 
has representation of the four named North American deserts within Arizona. The southeastern corner of Arizona has a small region of Chihuahuan Desert. The southern part is Sonoran Desert. The northwestern part is Mojave Desert. And the northern part of Arizona has the Great Basin Desert. So there's an interesting admixture of desert vegetation and plants and animals in the Grand Canyon that seems to be kind of stretched along an elevational gradient. The lower areas have low elevation, they're warmer, hotter, receive no frost, no snow, so there's a different vegetation there. And the upper slopes, it's slightly colder in the winter, it does receive frost, does receive occasionally snowfall, and so it's a different desert region. And this is kind of a well-known effect of elevation on plant communities in North America. And that was actually first written about in this area of Arizona, maybe 150 years ago, 120, something like that. This fellow is C. Hart Merriam, a biologist and part of the original U.S. Biological Survey. He noticed that as you go up the slopes of mountains in Arizona, the vegetation changes in a way that's similar to the way if you were to go up north in latitude. So basically a hike in the San Francisco mountains or San Francisco peaks near Flagstaff, Arizona is similar to if you were to hike to the top of Humphreys Peak, it would be like walking all the way to northern Canada. The elevational change there is similar to the change in latitude. So when you start out at the bottom of those mountains, it's kind of this pinyon juniper woodland like you would expect to find all over the Colorado Plateau. But if you go up a thousand feet in elevation, it changes into kind of through a ponderosa pine forest and into a spruce fir forest, which is spruce fir forests are like what you would expect to find in, in normal elevations up in Canada. And eventually you get so high that you reach a tree line where no trees can grow and it's basically like arctic tundra but it's the alpine tundra and you see the same thing in the grand canyon when you go down into the canyon you see this shift in elevation and it all has to do with the kind of air pressure and the amount of moisture that the different elevations can support so at low elevations you get really hot dry conditions and if you're at higher elevations there's more rainfall and so you can support forests we call that effect of elevation on the different plant communities the life zone concept. So you go through these different life zones at different elevations. And in the Grand Canyon, you almost see this kind of upside down life zone, where at the top you have pinyon juniper woodlands, and, and you go down in elevation, you hike down, and you go through a couple of different types of desert vegetation. The other interesting thing I've noticed on this float trip is there's a really interesting east to west change as you go down the canyon. So on the eastern side, when we put in at Lee's Ferry, the vegetation is, is mostly kind of like that you see in, in the Four Corners area, the rest of the Colorado Plateau, a lot of uh, shrubs like shadscale, four-winged saltbush, and things like that that you might be familiar with from that area. And as you go floating to the west on the canyon, we start to see more plants that are more closely associated with Southern Arizona and Southern California, things like Ocotillo and creosote bush and these big barrel cacti that we're seeing all around us. Ocotillo is this beautiful spindly shrub that looks almost like an upside down squid that's got its tentacles up in the air and it's covered in spines. And I always thought it would make a great villain for a, a science fiction horror movie because it's covered in spines. It looks like it wants to reach out and grab you. And it's growing all over the slopes here as we paddle by. And so the western part of the Grand Canyon is kind of 
hotter and drier and it kind of has a different climate apparently than the eastern part the eastern part is going to get a lot of kind of summer thunderstorm rainfalls and the western part is drier in the summer i think overall and maybe gets a little bit more of the winter precipitation that is more typical of the mojave desert so really interesting gradients all over the place uh, up the canyon down the canyon up the river, down the river, east to west, north to south. It's, it's an amazing kind of intersection of different factors that lead to the distributions of different plants and animals. That's the voice of Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology and is also the author of American Stinks. Professor Graham, let's talk about some of the animals in the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I'm glad we're going to get to talk about the animals. I'm actually not that much of a plant expert. I, I do mostly study vertebrates, so the vertebrates here are, are very interesting too. Some of the more obvious and more readily observable animals that we've seen are the desert bighorn sheep, which are just magnificent, very similar, and uh, still the same species really as the Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep. But in the deserts of North America, this kind of unique variety of um, bighorn evolved for more dry conditions. So they're smaller overall. They don't have quite as large horns as the Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep. The thing you can really notice if you've seen them both, uh, Rocky Mountain bighorn versus desert bighorn, is the coat color. The coat color of a desert bighorn is much paler and kind of this tan color would be better for them for kind of reflecting the heat, reflecting sunlight. A lot of desert animals have much paler coat colors, paler colors overall, whether they're a reptile with scales or bird with uh, feathers. They're going to be paler colored, almost white in many cases, to reflect sunlight so they don't overheat. So the desert bighorn, we've seen almost every day. We see them hanging out on the rocks, the cliffs above us, and they just, in many cases, they seem to be curious. They just see, watch us go by, and in one case I saw a big ram actually step forward to look and kind of cock its head as we went by which is really beautiful. We have lots of rattlesnakes so we have the Grand Canyon pink that we talked about in our show last week and a couple of other species. We're now floating into the zone where western diamondback rattlesnakes and Mojave rattlesnakes can be found in the Grand Canyon. And there's other species like Gila monsters that are usually found much farther to the south, more commonly to the south in southern Arizona, are found here in the inner canyon, kind of much farther north than, than almost any other place you can find them. The Colorado River has a very unique fish fauna that is worth talking about. It's, it's an endangered fish fauna. It formerly had something like 15 or 16 species of minnows, essentially. In the Colorado River, there, there are no other kind of fish to compete with, so the, the minnows of the Colorado River became gigantic in some cases and filled niches that would usually otherwise be filled by other kinds of species, like maybe bass. And There are no native bass in the Colorado River. Instead, these, these minnows became these kind of really interesting, oddly shaped creatures like the humpback chub, which we were able to see on um, the upper part of our trip. A beautiful fish with a huge hump on its back, whose function, I guess, is still unknown. But every one of the fish, pretty much, of the Colorado River, many of those, the humpback chub included, are federally endangered species because the Colorado River has been so changed by humans, mostly from hydroelectric dams, which have completely changed the face of the river. The river formerly was uh, fed mostly from snowmelt of the Rocky Mountains. 
so the flows in the river would change drastically, go up and down, and it used to be just choked with sediment, and those fish evolved under those conditions. And so now we have this stream that's more like a big trout stream with a rocky substrate, a rocky uh, floor, and supports non-native trout that were introduced to the river for fishing. And so everything's changed, and so these poor fish kind of need and occur only in some of the uh, more natural flow tributaries of the Colorado River. So we saw humpback chub near the Little Colorado River, near its mouth. They apparently spawn in the Little Colorado River, and that's the reason why they're in that zone. But otherwise, that fish can't really use most of the Colorado River. It certainly can't use the hydroelectric dams that the Colorado River flow into. The canyon, we don't really know exactly how old it is, but something like five to six million years old. The rocks of the Grand Canyon, of course, are much, much older. But the canyon itself was probably formed over the last five to six million years. The Colorado River carved it. And it's so huge and immense. The conditions in the canyon are so different from the north and south rim of the canyon that it has become a significant barrier for many species and has led to potentially to speciation on either side and maybe within the canyon. Within the canyon for vertebrate species, probably the best example would be the Grand Canyon rattlesnake, the Grand Canyon pink. The conditions within the canyon are unique enough that it probably led to the evolution of a unique species of rattlesnake. But on either side of the canyon, and the environment's totally different. You got forests mostly and woodlands on either side of the canyon, and then in the canyon you have desert. So the Colorado River itself is probably not that significant a barrier, but the desert within the canyon is. And so on either side of the canyon, we see interesting differences in, in the kinds of species that occur there. The tassel-eared squirrels, large, charismatic, quite cute squirrels that occur in forests on either side of the canyon seem to have been influenced by the canyon itself in terms of the species that occur on the north and south rim. The north rim has a kind of a darker tessellated squirrel called a kaibab squirrel, named after the kaibab plateau. And on the south rim and farther south from there, you have another type that's more of a gray color called the Abert's squirrel. They both probably formerly were just a single species, but the canyon blocking gene flow between the north and south rim populations ultimately led to the evolution of two types of tassel-eared squirrels, the kaibab and the abers. On the river, we've seen lots of birds. There's the tamarisk forest on either bank seem to support a small group of songbirds. I've seen things like yellow warblers, uh, Lucy's warblers, yellow throat, the common yellow throat. All three of those are types of warblers. And this small kind of gallery forest of tamarisk and Greg catclaw and honey mesquite are supporting small populations of these little birds that are, are kind of well known for occurring in riparian or river type areas of the southwest. Now, along with those guys, I've, I've heard yellow-breasted chats and blue grosbeaks. So it's a nice little kind of morning serenade by those small songbirds and hearing them twittering around in the vegetation. On our first day, we, we saw a California condor roosting on, on a bridge near Lee's Ferry. Uh, the condors apparently like to roost on that bridge quite often. The condors, of course, being the result of a very ambitious captive breeding project to save that species. California condor was formerly down to something like 17 individuals when they were all captured from the wild and brought into a breeding program that has been pretty successful. They've been re-released in California now. I think they had their first releases 
in Baja, California, in Mexico. And of course, they selected the Grand Canyon area as another release site. They seem to be doing quite well here. And so we got to see a California condor on our first day. Other raptors, we've seen a couple of red-tailed hawks. We've seen a golden eagle. Peregrine falcons seem to be pretty common. And we heard them doing their calls this morning while we were having breakfast. We heard their We heard that right across the river, and those are always a treat to see. So, really nice location for birding. The only problem is that you can have your binoculars out looking for birds, and you just need to put them away before you hit a big rapid. My binoculars are at least splash-proof, so it's been okay. But uh, I have had to take them off and put them in a dry box, an ammo box for a while, uh, to make sure that I didn't go in the water with them or they didn't get ripped off of me in some of these big rapids that we've run. That is the voice of Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology and is also the author of American Snakes. When we come back, we're going to learn about where you might find deserts in the world and what causes that. But Sean, it's now time for a song. You've got a selection of desert songs uh, that you are stoked to share with us. And I was wondering which one you'd like to select for the desert we're floating through right now in the Grand Canyon. This is kind of a personal one for me. My first trip to the desert and my first trip to this region, my first trip to see the Grand Canyon was, I think, back in 1994 when I took a family trip. I was about 15. And on that trip, I had just bought the Smashing Pumpkins album, Siamese Dream. And that album will always remind me of the desert. And my favorite song from that album is Hummer. Good day, mate. This is Joe coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in Eastern Australia. The Trail Less Traveled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp, family farmed, organically grown, tested and manufactured in Sisters, Oregon. Desert Green is a collective of farms on the eastern foothills of the Oregon Cascade Range that grow and produce the highest quality full-spectrum CBD products currently on the market. Desert Green grows some of the finest genetics in the world using organic and biodynamic practices to provide the cleanest and most effective CBD. The rich volcanic mountain soils, dry climate and directly sourced mountain spring waters are what gives Desert Green uniquely pure and powerful CBD products. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A. This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, Mandela, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio. We're floating right now down the Colorado River in the heart of the Grand Canyon. I am rowing an 18-foot boat and trying to stay ahead of the group because there's a bunch of really loud teenagers behind us having water fights. So it's pretty tranquil where we are now. You can hear the sound of birds and insects around us and it's a pretty chill day downstream of Lava Falls. I'm in the boat with Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology and is also the author of American Snakes. We're talking about deserts in this episode and I'd like to now ask you, Sean, about horse latitudes and where you might find deserts all around the world and why. What causes that? Most of the deserts of the world are confined to the two zones on either side of the equator. 
interesting that it's kind of mirrored both belts the desert belts are on either side of the equator what causes that there's it's basically four main geographic factors that cause deserts and the main one and the reason why if you look at a picture of the globe and you see that big green belt at the equator where the tropics are where the tropical rainforests are on either side of that just to the north and south of the equator you'll see these two bands of brown areas of the globe those are the desert belts those are what we call the horse latitudes that number one factor that causes deserts at those latitudes which are around 25 degrees north and south latitude this effect of the sun the sun hits the earth most directly or sunlight and warmth from the sun hits the earth most directly right at the equator on average around the entire globe and across the year that heats up this huge area this huge plume of air right at the equator that then rises that hot air rises and as hot air rises and it cools any water vapor in that air is going to kind of condense and then fall and so you have this heating of the earth right at the equator that then pushes all the water out and that's why you get all that rain in, in the tropics and that's why it's so wet in the tropics but what then happens next causes the deserts that hot air will rise and then kind of gets displaced to the north and to the south as it gets displaced, all the water has been wrung out of it by the rising and cooling effect. And as it gets displaced, it kind of gets displaced a couple of degrees latitude up to the north and south, but 25 degrees north, right around the Tropic of Cancer and Capricorn. So that hot air rises. As it rises, it cools. And the water vapor present in that air will fall to the earth as rain. And this is why the equator and the tropics get so much rain. What happens next causes the deserts. As that hot air rises and cools, it condenses and all the moisture is wrung out of it and then it gets displaced. It rises and is displaced to the north and to the south around 25 degrees north and south latitude. And the air descending on those latitudes is extremely dry. There's hardly any moisture in it. It's all been wrung out onto the tropical areas. So those areas of the world, those areas of brown, are the areas where you have lots of deserts. Now, where we are, we have a desert, but we're far north of 25 degrees north latitude. The deserts of North America are well outside of what we call the horse latitudes for the most part. The southernmost areas are in the horse latitudes, but they extend farther to the north, much farther to the north. And so there has to be other factors involved in explaining where the distribution of deserts are. But the main one that most of the global deserts are found in, the main effect is that horse latitude effect. The name horse latitude comes from the fact that in those same latitudes, because of the high pressure system that's coming down and causing all of that hot and dry air, because of that, in that area, there are also very calm seas. And in the past, when sailors were traveling all over the world using the trade winds they would get to the same latitudes where the deserts are and find that the air is very calm and there's very little wind and sometimes they would not have winds for weeks and they'd run through their supplies and they would actually have to eat their horses uh, and so that's where that name comes from the horse latitudes so there has to be other things that explain desert regions. North America is far outside the horse latitudes. So probably the, the next thing that we need to talk about is what we call the rain shadow effect. On the lee side of big mountain ranges, the mountain ranges can have the same kind of drying effect as the horse latitude effect. As moist air 
is pushed up and over mountains. It gets pushed up into high elevations and cools, and you have the same thing happen again. You have lots of moisture dropping. And so on the windward side of mountains, you will find a lot of moisture, a lot of precipitation, a lot of forests, but then on the other side of the mountains, it becomes very dry. And so North American deserts especially seem to be in what's called the rain shadow of some of our very tall mountain ranges, the Sierra Nevada of California and the Sierra Madre Occidental and Oriental in Mexico. And so our deserts are kind of socked away inside the rain shadow of some of our mountains. And this is a major factor in North America. Another factor involved simply being very, very far away from the coastline. In the interior of our big continents, it's very far from the ocean. And the ocean provides a lot of the access to moisture where rain is going to happen. So the continental interior effect is a large factor responsible for, especially in some cases, the North American deserts. Uh, the Great Basin Desert is kind of in the very most interior part of our continent, and it's very far from the coast. It's also in the rain shadow of the Sierra Nevada, and so that's a very dry area. And then the Central Asian deserts and the Gobi Desert are in the interior of the largest continent, so a large continental interior effect. Besides the rain shadow effect, which is important for North American deserts and the presence of the horse latitude deserts, another factor that's very important for causing very arid condition, you could call the continental interior effect. In the center of the continents, the large continents, is generally very far from the ocean, and the ocean is kind of driving patterns of moisture on the continents. So the farther you are from the ocean, the drier it can be. And the center of many large continents can have deserts because they're so far from the coast. And this is important in North America for the Great Basin Desert, which is pretty central in the U.S. And it's also in the rain shadow of the Sierra Nevada. But it's pretty far from any of the coasts and not much coastal air, either from the Gulf of Mexico or the Pacific Ocean reach the Great Basin. So it's a pretty dry area of the U.S. And of course, the Central Asian deserts are kind of in the center interior of the largest continent, Asia. So that kind of makes sense that there would be a big, important continental interior effect there. And the last uh, important factor that can drive arid conditions is a coastal desert effect, a, a cold water current effect. In the western margins of some of the continents, there's are cold water currents that run along the western margin of the continent. And cold water currents, if, if the water on the outside of the land is actually colder than the land itself, the water will tend to try to pull moisture from the land and have this kind of wicking effect, a drying effect on the land. And so the classic example is the Humboldt current that comes up from Antarctica has this drying effect along the western coast of South America where you find the Atacama Desert, which is considered the driest desert on earth. There's places in the Atacama that apparently have not received rainfall in recorded history, and, and the Spanish have been there since the 1500s. The same effect drives the drying of the Namib Desert on the west coast of Africa as well, where you have miles and miles of coastline, just nothing but sand dunes. They call it the Skeleton Coast. Another interesting thing about these cold water current deserts is that these cold water currents will cause local fog in the area just right along the side of the coast. So there'll be this couple of kilometer width area within the water where there is some vegetation that mostly gets its water supply from fog. And there's all kinds of interesting, unique 
plant and animal adaptations for getting water from fog. So the fog deserts are associated with cold water currents as well. So as far as North America goes, we have this kind of combination of factors. The southernmost parts of our deserts are found in the horse latitudes. So southern Baja California, southern Chihuahuan Desert, the southern Sonoran Desert. But the rest of our deserts are found well to the north of the horse latitudes, mostly because of kind of a combination of the continental interior effect and the rain shadow effect from the mountains. And finally, we do have a cold water current area of our desert. A cold water current kind of skims along the side of Baja California. And we even have a fog desert there. In certain areas of Baja California, there are heavy fogs and there's places where there's things like cacti with lichens and mosses growing all over them to get moisture from the fog. So North America is pretty unique in having most of these desert types interacting to form our North American deserts all in the same place. And you can pretty much walk from one desert to another and experience all the different factors all interacting to converge to influence our desert environments. You're listening to the trail less traveled. The noise you hear is the mighty Colorado River as we go down another rapid. This has just been a, an unending 12 or 13 days of rapids all the time. And even the small rapids, which is one we just went down, are pretty, you know, if you weren't in a big raft, it would be tough to negotiate. I'm constantly catching myself thinking about what it would be like to float this river in a canoe. <laughs> and that would be a difficult proposition. That's the voice of Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology and is also the author of American Snakes. Professor Graham, I'd like to ask you about the levels of fertility in the desert versus the rainforest. From my understanding, people always think of the rainforest as being this place where plants can thrive. But from my understanding, in the rainforest, the plants are competing for sunlight and in the desert, it is really fertile. And if there's rain, things will grow. Is that correct? Uh, is it correct for all deserts? Yeah, so contrasting rainforests with deserts is kind of an interesting comparison. The two places are drastically different for a lot of different reasons. Rainforests, of course, get tons of rain. Deserts don't. And you're right, uh, rainforests are not particularly fertile. The soils in rainforests are not particularly fertile, mostly because in a lot of cases the rain, and there's so much rain that it leaches any nutrients out of the soil. But yet trees and lianas, epiphytes, all kinds of plants manage to get the nutrients they need. A lot of times they're kind of recycling what nutrients there are through this ecosystem to keep that stuff in the rainforest. And it supports tremendous biodiversity. Now, deserts are also pretty nutrient poor for kind of the same reason in reverse. So there's so little plant life that live in the desert that there's not much of this kind of decomposition that happens in the rainforest where you can recycle nutrients. So if a tree dies in a rainforest, there's going to be termites and fungi and bacteria that are going to recycle those nutrients back into the soil and it'll kind of get cycled through and nothing is wasted. In the desert, there's so few things actually living that the soils are very thin and, and not very great. There are probably some areas, I would think, in some deserts where maybe there's 
there's kind of remnant soils with a lot of nutrients and yeah maybe if you watered that soil you could do well with it we've turned many of our semi-arid regions in north america into bread baskets the central valley of california is a prime example they essentially routed the colorado river to irrigate that area and it's the agricultural hotspot of north america for cash crops so there are some exceptions but many of the real straight desert environments don't receive enough rainfall and for that reason they don't have much soil fertility and so even if you could water them i don't think you get very many crops out of them so a lot of these environments have always traditionally the main use worldwide for deserts has been pastoralism you can run goats through deserts and get them fat enough to butcher right and you can run some types of other animals like you know even cattle in some places and you can run camels for food and so traditionally for the longest time it's been kind of pastoralism nomadism and even now still that's a big economic use of deserts worldwide in the u.s is one of the few places where actually tourism has kind of outpaced any kind of ranching or pastoralism in the, in the desert southwest. So people coming from all over the country to see the giant saguaro cactus in the Grand Canyon has established the, the southwest along with a couple of big cities as this interesting area where you can go visit a desert for fun, which is very new in civilization, I would think, because traditionally for the longest time people have avoided deserts because of all the dangers and the lack of use for anything usually used for civilization. Professor Graham, I'd like to ask you now about some of the adaptations that animals and maybe cactus have made so that they are able to survive for long periods of time without water and or just survive in an extremely arid environment. So adaptations of animals to desert environments can kind of be put into two categories. And these same categories kind of apply to plants as well. So in deserts, you find kind of a category of animals and plants that are essentially drought avoiders, right? So they don't actually have any real special adaptations for dealing with hot, dry conditions. They simply wait for opportunities when it's not hot and dry, and that's when they're active. And so desert amphibians would be a classic example example of this. And a few times of year during the monsoon season when it does rain and there's a lot of thunderstorms in the southwest, frogs are going to come out and reproduce and feed and they then go underground and wait out the hard times four or five feet in the sand where it's nice and damp. They, they actually don't have any real special adaptations for avoiding drying out other than you know digging themselves four feet underground and waiting for the rains they're still amphibians. Their skin is still very permeable. If you were to dig them out and put them on a rock, they'd be dead within an hour. They would dry out. So, so drought avoiders just kind of avoid the situation. You see the same thing in plants, but it's just slightly different. Some of the most numerous types of plants in the desert you don't usually see unless it's been a big rain year. So a huge rainfall will happen maybe in the winter time in the Mojave Desert. And you know, six weeks later, you have these super blooms where bunches of wildflowers will emerge from seeds that might have been germinated or that might have came from a reproductive event years before, decades before. So they wait out the hard times as seeds in the ground. And they, the seeds are a perfect way to do that. It's like a little bitty cocoon that'll protect the little plant. And then when rains come and conditions are nice, they bloom. And so for that two week period that they're blooming, the desert is not like a desert. There's abundant soil moisture. It's not particularly hot. And so they are drought avoiders. They just don't worry about it. Now, the other category of adaptations for dealing with deserts 
you can call drought tolerance. So these would be plants and animals that actually tolerate and go up against the really brutal conditions of deserts. And there are several different kinds of adaptations in animals for dealing with that. You've got really light-colored pelage, right? The fur or the feathers or scales of a desert animal will be much paler than in a forest or grassland environment to help reflect sunlight and so they're not getting huge heat loads. Many desert animals have kidney adaptations for conserving as much water as possible. So a famous example of that is our local little kangaroo rats, which have these incredibly long loops of certain kinds of tubules in the kidney that help to really retain a lot more water. They help to really concentrate the urine inside the kidneys to where the kidneys are so concentrated that it'll actually pull extra water from the bloodstream and, and retain more water. And they've got the longest of those kind of loops of, of any mammal proportionate to their body. Kangaroo rats are also noteworthy, and many other desert mammals can get all of the water they need from eating food. They don't actually drink free water, even if it's offered to them. A kangaroo rat will not drink water. It can get all the water it needs by digesting and metabolizing a seed, a dry seed. So when they metabolize a seed through the normal process of digestion, you do this too. You make a little bit of water when you're going through that metabolic process with your cells. It's just that with kangaroo rats and certain other mammals on up to the size of something like an oryx, they can get all the water requirements they need from simple metabolism of dried grass and, and seeds, which is pretty incredible. So having efficient kidneys, having an ability to make metabolic water, having pale coat colors and, and scales, all of these things are going to kind of reduce the amount of heat that they're going to get from the environment and also try to conserve water at the best. And those are, those are a series of adaptations. One more adaptation that I think is often not really thought of as, an, as a desert adaptation but should be is just the way the metabolic process of a amphibian or reptile works, what we call ectothermy and what most people traditionally used to call cold-bloodedness, right? A lot of times this is thought of as, as kind of a really primitive form of metabolism where, you know, they can't make their own body heat. So they get all their heat from the external environment. And, and this is usually thought of as smugly by us mammals that have our, we, we make our own body heat as some sort of a primitive system that's not as good as ours. But in the desert, it's really effective. A snake, if it's really hot for three weeks and there's no food and no rain, a snake can just crawl in a, in a rock, under a rock, and hide out those hard times and wait until times get better. There really aren't mammals that can do that on a whim like that. They can have special adaptations for hibernation or even kind of a hibernation during the summertime. Some mammals do that. But snakes can just choose to do it on a whim and without any special adaptation needed. So being ectothermic, getting your body heat from the sun is almost like being solar powered. And you can kind of imagine in the desert that would be a, a good strategy. You can cool off under a rock if you need to. You can heat up in the sun if you need to. And it doesn't waste any energy from your food. And so they're really good ectotherms, especially lizards and snakes, are excellent desert survivors. And it turns out that in some desert environments, there are more species of lizards and snakes than in any other area of the world. The most diversity of lizards and snakes per square mile, I guess, is, is found in some of the deserts of Australia. And in many of these desert environments, lizards and snakes are the most abundant vertebrates. They outnumber the birds. Lizards and snakes are probably more abundant in deserts than most people think. They're important 
and that's awesome. That's the voice of Dr. Sean Graham. He is a professor of biology. He's also the author of the book, American Snakes. When we come back, we're gonna learn a little bit more about deserts, but now it's time for a song. We're floating down the Colorado River right now. It's difficult because it's windy. It's always a little bit windy in the afternoon. It's unfortunately usually a headwind. So hopefully the audio is still all right for you if you're listening. And it's time for a song. Sean, what desert song would you like to share with us? Well, my favorite album of all time is U2 The Joshua Tree, which self-consciously by the band, it's kind of about deserts. Not really necessarily the desert environment or anything like that, but also kind of I think they were looking at ideas about the soul in the desert and that's what that album is really about but of course it's got the band at Zabriskie Point on the album cover in Death Valley and it's got a picture of the Joshua Tree on the album cover so it's one of my favorite albums and every song on there I feel like when I listen to it it reminds me of the desert my favorite song from that album is One Tree Hill We're sitting here at Lower Parishon Camp River Wright in the heart of the Grand Canyon. Earlier in the day, the wind came up and we had to stop recording while we were floating down the river. But now we're here at camp and sitting on the boats, drinking beer, eating popcorn, and I'm sitting with Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology and he's also the author of American Snakes. Sean, let's talk a little bit about animal adaptations and conservation in the desert. A lot of people would be surprised that there's actually a lot of a lot of fish in the desert and these fish have unique adaptations for surviving in the desert. And it kind of doesn't make any sense I suppose that you would have fish in the desert but there are and there's an interesting diversity of fish in the southwestern U.S. in our deserts. In Africa there are actually small fish species that can live out their lives through hard times kind of like those wildflowers that we just talked about as eggs buried in the mud of a drying pool and they'll survive the hard times as eggs. Our fish don't have that adaptation. It's interesting that they don't but instead they have to survive whatever conditions come their way. They don't wait out hard times as eggs. They have to carry on as adults and reproduce and do the normal things. And so we have a, a small but interesting selection of desert pupfish in the desert southwest that are very interesting. The kind of explanation for why these fish occur there is that maybe during the last ice age, there were actually a lot of a series of small lakes throughout the southwestern U.S. where there are now just dry lake beds, salt flats. And so formerly there were probably a, a decent number of different kinds of fish, including pupfish, that occurred in those lakes, but now they're all dry. And in a couple of tiny little spots, a kind of tiny little springs, the survivors from the last age still occur there. And they have to tolerate temperatures, uh, really high temperatures in the summer that would kill most other fish, and really high salinities, uh, high levels of salt uh, from the evaporating springs and the evaporating whenever any kind of a thunderstorm happens and drops some rains that that water will evaporate and make the water even saltier. So probably the most famous one is the Devil's Hole pupfish which occurs in Death Valley National Park and has one of the smallest geographic distributions if not the smallest geographic distribution of any vertebrate on earth. It occurs in one small pool that's about the size of a house in a tiny little rock cave in Death Valley. 
and it doesn't even occur in the entire spring pool it, it just occurs in one small little region within that pool where the water is just right where it's not too hot or too saline too salty for it to live and the entire population of that species is confined to that pool and it's a federally endangered fish because it's found nowhere else and they've had to kind of go through great lengths to protect the species from over pumping the aquifer where the water comes from farmers would love to get at that aquifer and despite the fact that it kind of doesn't make much sense to irrigate in such harsh conditions of death valley farmers have wanted to pump that water and so there's had to been it had to be management to make sure that if there is any pumping of that aquifer it's it's done at a level where the the fish will have water and there's even been a case recently where some yokels went in and actually trespassed into the spring and got in the spring and actually killed one of the fish by trampling it. They actually ended up finding out who these people were from looking at closed circuit video footage of the spring and they, they prosecuted. They were able to catch the people responsible and I think they got a stiff fine for that happening. The whole spring is covered with a barbed wire fence and they should have known better. There's signs saying you can't go in there and they just went in there and did it anyway. The desert pupfish, uh, there's a, a number of them that are in, in pretty decent trouble. The main threat is not necessarily someone going in there trespassing and like stealing one of these fish or hurting them. The main problem is pumping groundwater. Ecosystems that rely on spring water, fossil water that's trapped in these limestone caves that come out they can't really tolerate any kind of pollution of that groundwater or over pumping and so the demand for water in the southwest for irrigation of crops or whatever use is going to be the thing that really affects fish populations and there's such interesting little animals in many cases very beautiful the devil's hole pupfish is actually quite beautiful the males the adult males are bright blue color they'd actually make a, a pretty nice aquarium fish i have no doubt they're pretty attractive little fish that's the voice of Dr. Sean Graham. He's a professor of biology, and he's the author of American Snakes. We're on a Grand Canyon expedition right now. We're on day 13 of a 15-day expedition. And during this trip, Sean has been kind enough to share some field notes about snakes and ecology and this environment that we're traveling through right now. Sean, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the deserts in Australia. My wife is from Australia. I've got to travel in Australia quite a lot, and I've been able to travel through a couple of their named desert regions. I haven't been able to explore it very well, but Australia in general, the factors that we talked about that can lead to the formation of deserts, the most important one in Australia is the fact that the entire continent of Australia straddles those horse latitudes. The Tropic of Capricorn goes directly across the northern part of Australia and so the whole place is right within that zone where the global dry belts are. It's the continent with the most proportionate arid environments for its size of any of the other continents. Practically the whole continent of Australia is a desert. So it's got vast regions. The one similarity, it's very different. The plants and animals that occur in the deserts of Australia are almost, every single one of them are totally different species than what we've got or even that don't even have close relatives. The desert mammals are mostly marsupials. There's lots of lizards and some of them look a little bit like ours, act a little bit like ours, but aren't close relative to the lizards that we have here. The one thing that we do kind of have in common with Australia is that deserts of Australia and North America are relatively lush. There's a lot of plant life. There's a lot of animal life. If you go to other deserts of the world, there's huge areas where there's basically no plant life. Huge areas where it's so dry that hardly anything lives. 
These are basically called hyper deserts or very, very arid regions. There's huge areas of Africa and Asia where it's so dry that there's so little rain that hardly anything grows. In Australia and North America, both of those regions receive enough rainfall to where some geographers might not even consider them true deserts because there's, there's a lot of plant life and a lot of animal life. And so you can go to the deserts of Australia and it's, it's kind of like you go here and you see shrubs everywhere growing and in many cases grasses growing, on a lot of grasses and even in some places trees, which is kind of counterintuitive. You don't really think of deserts as places where trees would grow. And so the deserts of Australia are kind of similar to ours in that sense, that they're lush, there's a lot of plant and animal life, but they're also still very formidable environments. A big difference between our deserts and theirs is the lack of surface water. So there's rainfall enough to support the growth of shrubs and things like that and, and some animal life, but you won't really find areas like with a big Colorado River flowing through it, right? Nor will you even expect to find the kind of famous oases that you might see in the deserts of Africa or, or the Middle East. There's hardly any surface water, so that their earlier exploration of Central Australia was very difficult. They'd have to go through great lengths to find little water holes to support any kind of overland travel through Australia. So there's very few rivers, and, and the, the ones that are there go dry for years at a time. And so surface water is extremely scarce in Australia. It's a remarkable place where lots of very strange plants that don't have close relatives in the U.S. you can find. Uh, you don't find lots of succulents in Australia, which are fleshy-leaved or stemmed plants like cacti and agaves and yuccas. Those are nearly completely absent in Australia, which is actually pretty interesting. In a lot of other deserts of the world, you will find succulents. In southern Africa, you can find succulents that look a lot like ours that aren't even closely related to the ones that we have in North America. But in Australia, it's basically kind of grown over with lots of strange-looking small shrubs. Some of them are kind of gray and green. Many of them are even spiny. And that most people think of deserts as places where you'll find spiny plants, and you don't see that in Australia very much. And of course, you've got the very interesting factor that you the dominant animals that are there the dominant mammals are marsupials instead of what we're used to seeing so you've got interesting little marsupial burrowing marsupials that occur in the ground and mole-like marsupials that look just like moles but they're not moles they're marsupials and you got big red kangaroos hopping around instead of something like a bighorn sheep and so that's something that kind of hits you immediately and of course i think the Australian desert should be most famous for is that it's a center of diversity for lizards. You find lizards of all sizes and shapes, and for someone like me, a herpetologist, this difference becomes really obvious when you visit these deserts. You see lizards everywhere, and lots of different kinds of lizards. Like you pick up a lizard and you go find another one, it's a different species. And then you go out at night. If you drive the deserts in North America, you drive around at night, you might see a couple of geckos crawling across the road if you're in southern Arizona, West Texas, and they'll be the same species. So you just find a handful of geckos. In Australia, you can find a couple of dozen geckos, and there are three or four different species every night. So there's just hundreds of species of lizards from small geckos up to six foot, you know, goannas. This big lizard called a parenti, which is essentially the coyote of the Australian outback but it's a big lizard instead of a mammal. And of course the dingo's there, but the lizards fill all kinds of incredible diverse niche, niches in Australia. 
and they're very diverse there. It's the most diverse lizard assemblage anywhere in the world. I mean, it's in the desert, which is kind of interesting. You are on the trail less traveled. We're recording today in the heart of the Grand Canyon on an 18-foot oarboat attached to four other 18-footers and at the end a paddleboat. And I'm on this expedition with Professor Sean Graham. He teaches biology. He's also the author of American Snakes. Sean, thank you so much for your time and your energy joining me today on The Trail Less Traveled. You're welcome. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been a great trip. Let's end your show with three bits of advice you'd like to share with the listener. Okay, I'm going to just off the cuff here give you advice specifically for desert travel. So always bring way more water than you think you need and drink a lot of water. There's no reason for humans to really have that much trouble in the desert if you're drinking plenty of water. If you have access to water, you don't really overheat. You can get your clothes wet, and that evaporative cooling will keep you cool. We haven't really had any trouble on the river, even though it's been brutally hot, because we can just jump in the river whenever we want. So if you have plenty of water, you can stay hydrated, you can stay cool, and there's no reason to overheat in the desert. So bring plenty of water. If you're in the desert, bring a shovel. You're going to need a shovel. You're going to get your car bogged in sand or something like that, and you can dig yourself out with a shovel. So a shovel is another really good tool to have in the desert. And the third thing I think I'd like to say is, is just kind of relax about the desert. Everyone kind of has this preconception that it's a really dangerous environment, unforgiving, and it kind of is. The desert does want to kill you. It really does. But it's a peaceful environment. It's quiet. And it's easy to walk through the desert. People think that the cactus is just going to come out of nowhere and stab you and there's prickly plants that are going to stab you and scorpions are going to come out of their way and get in your boots and rattlesnakes are going to fall on your head. And I find it very easy to walk through the desert, very easy to navigate through the desert. There's not much vegetation in your way, so you can see landmarks, so it's easy to navigate with a map. And in many ways, it's very clean. You know, I've been in way worse environments that were way more unforgiving and more difficult to go through. Rainforests and even eastern swamps and places like that. The, the desert is clean and it's easy. Just relax about it and be smart and then you can enjoy it. Professor Sean Graham, what song would you like to end your show with? It'd be good to end the program on a great old police song, Tea in the Sahara. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series dedicated to documenting culture around the world before it's lost by collecting stories and sounds from the most remote locations around the world, taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, that being storytelling. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Dr. Sean Graham. Professor Graham teaches biology at Sol Ross University in Alpine, Texas. He is also the author of American Snakes. This interview with Sean was recorded while floating down the Colorado River in the heart of the Grand Canyon. My name's Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. I invite you to join us as we record on location around the world by visiting traillesstraveled.net. The show is also a podcast that you can find wherever you gather podcasts. The Trail Less Traveled is the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. And my adventure tip this week is to take care of your feet should you find yourself on an expedition down the Grand Canyon. 
of course wear your shoes around camp, but at night apply cream or balm to your toes and keep an eye out for tolio, the flesh-eating bacteria. Should you encounter this, you can experiment with tea tree oil or erythromycin. But if nothing else, try your best to keep your feet dry around camp. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, I invite you to do something for Mother Earth. And get outside. Shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. <laughs>